I don't know. I have tried to not pay attention to the UFO How? stuff as much as possible. Why? Oh my gosh, I'm obsessed. I'm like, tell me more. Hi, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horback. Before we get started on this week's episode, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandace.com. And from there, you can either sign up for our Patreon account or you can hit that little link that says buy me coffee. Both things help me out a ton, especially because I'm just getting started. And if you become a Patreon, there's some special perks. You get shout outs, early access to episodes, and eventually I would like to start doing some live AMAs. This week, I'd like to give a shout out to Ava Marie. Thank you so much for being a Patreon. I really appreciate it. Now this week, I have a very special guest. We have James Lindsay joining the podcast. James's most recent book is Cynical Theories, and he is known for taking down social justice warriors on his Twitter. He's a really funny guy. We got into some really cool topics, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Please help me welcome James Lindsay. Okay. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. I um I was actually a little bit surprised when you said yes. It's like still new to me, so when I get people that I kind of like follow and look up to, it's like pleasantly surprising. So oh thank well, you. thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I was surprised. Yeah. I saw you were um you were on Twitter the other day, and you were like saying that you got verified on Parlor, and you're like, Twitter, it's your turn. I was like, I can't believe you're not verified yet. And then I guess with oh, they all won't the stuff that it. you tweet, why though? Just because of your, I don't know your tweets. I'm on the wrong side. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Sullivan's like way more in line with what you're supposed to say and not say, and he's not verified either. So and he's much more famous than I am still. I think so. They've got they've got some. I, I think it's probably the same reason that our book did not make the New York Times bestseller list, though it did make the other ones. I saw that too. So um, I guess for our listeners that maybe don't know you or your background, do you want to get into that? And then I definitely want to talk about how it's not a bestseller because I was actually shocked by that. Yeah, we can we can do we can do that. So we wrote a book. My colleague and I, Helen Pluckrose, wrote a book called Cynical Theories. I can see it behind your shoulder. Yeah, uh, <laughs> with cool sunglasses on the on the cover. Um, it explains essentially the philosoph part of the philosophical background of what's going on with the so-called woke or social justice movement. It tries to show where it came from. Tries to show how it deviates from what we think of as kind of classically liberal ideals. And it did really well when it came out. I mean, it sold like crazy. Uh, and it made the USA Today bestseller list. It made the um what was it? The uh, Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And then it did not make the New York Times bestseller list, which was odd given how many it sold. So we inquired and they said, well, we don't think that it, what it sold reflects the organic buying patterns of Americans. And so it doesn't make our list, but it sold, it, it was, should have been by the numbers. If you looked at the numbers that we had available, number eight on the list that week. And um, they do 15 on their list total. And it should have been number eight. It sold 2,500 more copies than the one that was in the number eight slot. And it sold three times as many copies as the one that was in number 14 slot. But the accusation usually is that it must be that a bunch of like right wing think tanks bought huge bulk orders. And so those don't count. And that's kind of, I think, what they are accusing us of. But I don't think that's what happened. Um, 
we don't have a big publisher. We aren't, I mean, we weren't really tied in with any right-wing organizations. So I don't know who would have done that. Uh, if they did, I guess, thank you. But <laughs> I don't think it happened. I was going to ask, is that typical? So when they decide who's on the list, I guess, what is like their idea of what's like an organic metric of a sale? Because wouldn't that apply to everything? Like don't companies mass order books anyways? Yeah, I don't know. The New York Times doesn't tell anybody how they how they determine that. And oh, so that gives them a lot of leeway to, you know, it's kind of like their secret recipe, you know, what is it? However many herbs and spices that they've got that they use to make the decision. And sneaky against sneaky, the sneaky. hegemony is, is, is the wrong, is the wrong flavor. <laughs> so, um, you got, I guess, a little bit of uh, flat. Well, you're always getting flack. You spend a lot of time on Twitter. I thought I spent a lot of time on Twitter. I think you spend even more time on Twitter than I do. And Twitter's always you- open for me. <laughs> it, it maybe is a little bit too much. I kind of see it as like nobody's winning on Twitter. No. So somebody has to win on Twitter. And I'm good at Twitter. I'm really good at Twitter. Mm-hmm. I don't like to sound like I'm arrogant about anything, but I can tweet. <laughs> like One thing I know how to do is play the Twitter game. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's like Neo goes into the matrix. I go into Twitter. It's just <laughs> what I do. Um, somebody's got to save the world from Twitter. I don't know, but yeah. So what, I guess, what inspired you to like get into this fight? Because it's not easy. And if you stand against like the mainstream narrative at all, people will like come for you and they come for you hard and you just like go in knowingly, right? Like you're willingly taking on this, this battle and that's kind of what your book is about. Um, so what inspired that? Well, you've seen the giant sword, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not the sword. Um, the, the thing is, is I have like an allergy to unfairness, mm-hmm. if you will, and, and, and to bullshit. Mm-hmm. And both of those things are kind of at the heart of this. I didn't go looking for this fight. I don't want to say it found me. It was more like, um, there's a, I've said this a, a billion times, but there's an episode of Seinfeld where Jerry's describing how Kramer lives his life and he says he falls ass backwards into money. Well, I don't <laughs> fall ass backwards into money. I fall ass backwards into fights about truth. And so I did. Uh, in this case, I was watching people who are my intellectual heroes years ago, I mean, 2013, 14, getting accused of sexism when the accusations are every bit as flimsy as the stuff we're seeing now. And... It was clearly unfair and it was clearly bogus. And being, I guess, who I am, I wanted to find out why and what's going on. So I started looking into it, started looking into their literature. I started looking into, um, I started paying attention to the things that they were actually saying, you know, oh, it's systemic instead of just individual or whatever. And I started looking at the ways that they were manipulating things. And I was like, wow, this, I was studying religion a lot at the time, in particular, the psychology of why people become religious or why they get drawn into cults. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is really similar. This is the same thing. And so I got really interested in studying it. I also thought it was unfair and a big problem. And then it was my colleague, Peter Bogosian and I decided, well, let's write a hoax paper and see what happens. And so we wrote a paper called the conceptual penis as a social construct. Because we were arguing with these people and it went nowhere. We just got called sex. You're like, oh, you're a man, of course. And it's like, (laughs) I can be... Okay. And so we wrote this conceptual penis as a social construct. We said penises don't really exist. They're socially constructed, but they cause all of our problems, especially climate change. And 
that went bonkers. It got into a predatory journal, I think. And so it didn't really prove anything about the discipline. It proved something about academic publishing that was a problem, but we spiked the wrong football. We were like, uh, gender studies is wrong. We were right about that, but not. we didn't have the evidence to, to back it up. So we decided to, with, we, we got Helen on board and we decided to do what's known as the Grievance Studies Affair. And we wrote all these fake papers, um, 20 fake academic papers. We sent them to feminist philosophy journals, gender studies journals, feminist theory journals, race journals, race and education, and this sociology journals to see what they would accept and what they wouldn't. And in the process, we learned a ton about what's going on in their scholarship. And we realized, holy crap. We, it's like, it's like if we'd gone into a building and we're looking around and everything looks okay. And then, you know, we're inspectors and we kind of like pull back a little bit of the, uh, drywall or a board or something. And it's just infested with like bugs and roaches and stuff. It's like, oh my God, this building is a disaster. And that's our universities. This is not good. And then we started tying that to what was happening to people for real with these like title nine inquisitions and all these bad things that were happening to people on campus. And it's like, oh my God, this is this is how it works. So then obviously also the thing went public, international headlines. I have a copy of the New York Times when they didn't hate me, uh, like right over here from 2018, <laughs> where, where our story is on the front page. Um, it blew up. It got so much attention. And all of a sudden we became international spokespeople for this problem, which we knew a lot about. And so we figured, well, we better know more about it because turns out contrary to what my friend's on Twitter say, we're pretty intellectually honest people. So we've thought, well, if we're going to talk about this, we better know as much as possible about it. So we started reading more deeply into it. That's where the book Cynical Theories came from, where we started tying it backwards to, um, in that case, the postmodern philosophy from the French postmodernists in the 60s and 70s. I've since tied it into the, the, the critical theorists who go back to the 1920s. It's a more of a German and American school of thought. And just kind of staring at what's happening and watching it unfold. And we found that we could start predicting like, things that were going to happen. Like <laughs> the logic of this thing is clear. Um, and at that point, we, we knew we were onto something. When you start being able to predict things, mm -hmm. especially things that are like nonsense, it's like. Can you give we're an example? Um, well, first of all, our papers predicted lots of things. Um, all of this stuff that we see with AI research being sexist and racist, and they need to have critical race theory, AI, one of our fake papers was about that. That's kind of like, that was accidental prediction. We um, predicted, I predicted, this is, this is really kind of an odd thing. I was talking to people, and I don't know how much of this I can talk about. This is really kind of careful I have to be. Um, I was talking to some people in February last year who work or will have worked, I guess it's about to be past tense, at a fairly high level in our federal government. And I said, this was in February, at the, near the end of February, I said, listen, I don't know who is responsible for this, but the message needs to get to them. America is about to plunge into a cultural revolution, Chinese style. I would give it six months tops. It broke out at the end of May. So it was about three and a half months later. Mm -hmm. um, so predicting an outbreak of a cultural revolution was a pretty good guess. Uh, I was like, all of the logic that was behind what Mao launched into his cultural revolution is already in play. The whole thing with all the race, all of the, it, they, they looked at me, these government people and were like, I don't 
no, really? I don't mm -hmm. think so. And I was like, no, really, somebody needs to be like starting to figure out how to stop a cultural revolution because it's about to happen. And we're going to see, especially students and young people going after educators, going after parents, going out to trying to use these tools to extract as much leverage as they can. And it will get violent. Uh, we're already seeing that, right? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, all year, uh, mm -hmm. the last half, I should say, of 2020 was just like all that. And so that was a pretty big prediction. Um, we predicted that the universities would continue to just double down and not ever start stepping back from this ledge. They would, in fact, we predicted that the universities would in, would would hit a budget crisis once COVID hit. We're like, this is going to create a massive budget crisis for the universities, which they're already facing budget crises. And what they will do is they will double down into the diversity administration. They will pay more people more money and go more into this rather than less. When COVID broke out, Twitter erupted. I got called stupid for a month. It was awesome. <laughs> Everybody called me stupid. They said, oh, woke is luxury beliefs. Woke is over. The pandemic has finally ended woke. And I was like, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, health equity is about to be a top priority in our country. And we're going to see them rearranging health care racially. We're going to see them saying that we have to level the, the health care playing field. And, well, I was right. Um, so those are some predictions we were able to make or I was able to make anyway. Um, yeah, that's – there's just so much that was just said there. So um, I guess we can – Yeah, a lot. A lot. And <laughs> a I lot. think the problem is with a lot of this stuff is – the average Joe doesn't know what a lot of these terms mean, mm -hmm. right? So when you say – when you start talking about Title IX, like a lot of people don't know the consequences of Title IX, right? Like they right. have jobs and families and they don't have time to to delve right. into these things unless they're directly affecting their family or themselves, right? Yep. So um, oh, I guess let's start with that because I saw that Joe Biden, like his uh, administration said that was one of the first things that he was going to re um, repeal, right, is to start right. letting that – go right. crazy on campuses. So can you kind of let the listeners know in a brief overview, like what is Title, title IX yeah. um, and like the dangers of it? Yeah. So Title IX is the gender, or I should say the sex aspect of federal civil rights legislation. It basically was installed to say that you can't discriminate against women on college campuses uh, in particular. So that that's sort of, I mean, when I was in college, we had to have our little title nine card saying that we'd been instructed and understood. And we had a little card we had to carry around that said we had, our, we were title nine instructed and we had to get it renewed every year. Um, it's kind of weird looking back on that. that is really like strange. a little, yeah. Um, but it, it allowed for the creation of women's sports. It prevented the, uh, on college campuses, it prevented any discrimination, like saying women can't be in college, women can't participate in athletic departments all of these kinds of things. And so for a long time, it was actually mostly good. It was just, mm -hmm. in fact, I would just say good. And then what a, what a lot of people don't understand is that that civil rights legislation, which I think we should hold up as being wholly valuable and good and progress for our country, is also very manipulable. And some radical activists figured out over the course, you know, this past first in what, 64 and then 68, I think there was a addition to it and there have been further additions to it since. Um, radical activists through the 70s and 80s and going into the 90s figured out how to manipulate it. 
And so it turns out in 2011, there was a massive expansion of Title IX following what was called the Dear Colleague Letter that was sent by, uh, I think, the federal government. I know Barack Obama stood up and talked about it. Joe Biden led the changes to Title IX and the Department of Education. And what they did was they expanded it based on a paper, that is, an academic paper that is methodologically completely flawed that many people have heard of. Obama talked about it, that either says, depending on the number is a fraction. So, but they, they claim that one in four or one in five women on college campuses will be sexually assaulted. But their definition of sexual assault included things like getting patted on the butt or, you know, sex regret the next day or something like that. Like a very expansive definition. Mm-hmm. So expansive that there were people who were classified by the study as having been raped, having claimed to have been raped, who later said, that never happened to me. What are you talking about? That's not. So it was a completely, the real number is not a happy number. It's still, from what I understand, I've seen another, but I don't, I couldn't cite it offhand, that it's closer to one in 40 or one in 45, which is still not good. Mm -hmm. But one in four is a complete, or one in five is a completely different thing. So what they did was they made it so that basically accusations of sexual assault get handled in colleges by what's known as a preponderance of evidence standard. And there's, it's all put behind like secrecy and stuff. So if I were in college and I got accused of sexual assault, I would go to a hearing in the Title IX office. I probably cannot have an attorney. I can't know who accused me. I can't actually know what the, the substance of the accusations are. And if the committee, which is not made of judges or, or jury, were to decide with a 50% plus one standard of evidence that I probably committed this sexual assault based on what's obviously almost always going to be a he said, she said argument, I can be expelled, I can be all kinds of things that are handled at the university level. And lots of people got expelled and then without due process of law, subsequently turned around and sued their universities and civil suits and won because they were, I mean, basically had their future destroyed. They were classified by their university as a rapist and thrown out of school for something that was probably more like awkward drunk sex or less. And Mm -hmm. um, when you have something like that going on, you have a problem. And this literally did lead to, I mean, all through the mid 2010s, like there are all these really sketchy cases, all these people getting their lives wrecked. And it took DeVos three years to, to figure out how to walk this crap back. And then Biden saying, oh, we're going to put that right back in full force. So everybody that works in a university and it's got that whole like tyranny feel to it. Everybody who works in a university is terrified of their Title IX office because they know that the, if they get called up, even on false accusations, they're in a kangaroo court now and they're fighting for their job or their education or their future. And the standards are absolutely not reflective of what you would see in the American legal system. Uh, the, the due process of law is not present. Uh, so it's it's a really scary situation. And it's only even been walked back mostly, but not all the way by DeVos. So that Biden's going to put it back and put it back stronger makes makes college campus. It's, so I don't know. A good parallel is when I was, this was what, it was sexism and misogyny and uh, sexual assault accusations that were, that tore apart the atheism movement I was involved in from the, in the early 2010s. And it got to the point where everybody was scared to go, all the men, I should say, were scared to go to conferences without a chaperone, lest they get falsely accused. Oh, wow. Or, 
So it's like they're taking their spouse, which is just, I mean, it's fine. Everybody likes to spend, but but it's Mm -hmm. more expensive and it's more cumbersome and you can't focus on work and whatever else. They're taking their kids, which that's even slightly awkward. They're, you know, not like making it a family environment. They're literally taking chaperones with them and they're behaving in weird ways. It makes the conferences no fun, of course. So nobody wanted to go to them and they collapsed eventually. They couldn't bring in any money. So it, it really creates this chilling effect that shuts things down. Um, and again, it's primarily predicated on this, this one paper that's completely bogus about what sexual assault means and uh, subjects. It, it may, the, the, the very short overview is it allows people to make false accusations. Almost, it's, I think there's been two against women, but they're almost all against men. Um, and those things have so much power that they can destroy lives, even though, I mean, just one, one vindictive storytelling ex-girlfriend can destroy somebody's life at that point. So you can imagine what that's going to do. It's just everything bad. Yeah. So when you have this evidence of these boys that are being falsely accused, like they wouldn't win these lawsuits if there wasn't something there, right? Why aren't we saying there's something wrong here? And then also, it's kind of crazy that we don't have to provide evidence for such a an intense accusation. And then if it's proven that, let's say, the woman was lying, that there's no consequence for that. So I understand the I understand where I that probably isn't in place or wasn't initially in place because you don't ever want like a true victim to, you right. know, suffer consequences because she couldn't right. prove whatever. Um, the accusation is, but at the same time, there are these vindictive people on both sides, right? Both genders can be malicious. So when you have a case like that, where someone's really just going after someone innocent, like there should be a consequence. Right. Um, so we should acknowledge, in fact, that, that there is a problem, a difficulty, I should say, with things like sexual assault, they are extremely hard to prove. Mm -hmm. And so you do have a situation where due process of law will, Kind of, you know, the old saying about it is better that better 10 guilty people go free than one innocent person is jailed. And with sexual assault, you kind of get that. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who did something wrong get away with it. A lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's very hard to prove. It often comes down to, you know, personal testimony versus personal testimony as far as the evidence goes. And so I understand the motivation here. I don't want to come off like I don't care. Clearly, I mean, I I don't, I don't think there are a few few people who don't care about sexual assault, but Mm -hmm. almost everybody cares a lot about sexual assault. So it's not an issue of that. It's an issue of balancing the ability to protect legitimate victims in both directions, which due process of law is meant to do. And in this particular type of case is it struggles to do. So there's something legitimate underneath the entire thing. And so there is an argument, how much due process do we protect? Um, But when you when you adopt a standard like we've all heard, believe women, all women, all believe all women (laughs) all the time. I've never met a woman that told a lie in my entire (laughs) life. We're very honest creatures. Yeah. Not men, though. We we're always we're always scheming. (laughs) <laughs> you can see how scheming I am right now. Um, I'm totally scheming. Uh, that's a problem. And then we've seen even worse how that get apl- that can get applied with a double standard. You know, we saw what happened 
with the accusations against people like Al Franken. And uh, so he bails out of the Senate. That was probably just cooked up as a, as a political sting. We had the accusations against um, Kavanaugh that turned into this gigantic circus. As a matter of fact, that probably turned into a circus that hurt me because our fake paper story came out in the middle of that Kavanaugh mess. And so all of the press in the universe was you know, gravitated toward pretending that we have to believe all women around the Kavanaugh situation. And then we have Joe Biden gets accused and all of a sudden, oh, that's not real. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, so it's like, okay, so now we're going to have like weird double standards and how we even apply that. The idea of due process and evidential standards is to minimize the ability for those sorts of abuses. So when you have this, you open up the ability for people to have these kinds of abuses. Plus, believe all women is a ridiculous standard. I think you have a really valid point when you bring up that a lot of facts don't matter to certain mm -hmm. people, right? Like you can just, these people are leading with emotions and it's very easy. I remember the Kavanaugh thing. There was a time where I like got swept in it because swept up in it because you see this woman and she's crying and she's telling like this very detailed story and you want to sympathize with her and have compassion for her. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there's someone else on the other side and their entire life is going to be, you know, tainted or ruined if he's innocent. So you have to give you have to give an equal opportunity to both parties and not just say, well, he's a man, so he's automatically guilty. Let's kick him out of school and forever call him a sexual predator. In high school, um, one of the boys in my one of my classes, he had uh, like broken up with a girlfriend or something like that, and they were at a party, and she went around and told everyone that he had raped her that night. And even like his closest friends were like, I don't know what to do in this situation because, you know, like even just – that that claim, right? You just like there's no evidence, and maybe it doesn't yeah. even go to court. Just like that accusation can ruin somebody. And he got yeah. kicked out of school. Didn't um, go to his. He had a scholarship for university that lost that. Like ruined this kids. I mean, we're talking like 15, 16 years old, like entire life off of nothing. And then right. it later was found out that she was lying, and nothing was done of it. It's just like oops. Yeah, this is a this is the nature of that problem. And mm -hmm. so you do you're not even allowed in the present mm -hmm. circumstances to say that there are false accusations being made mm -hmm. because that denies apparently real accusations or the claim is that it makes people who have real accusations less likely to report them because they're less likely to be believed. Mm -hmm. And I can see that there's some credit to that argument, but I can also see kind of how it works the opposite direction. Um because people who make false accusations are often doing it for attention. They are people who want attention mm -hmm. and or malice, but attention's mm -hmm. often mixed into this this bag. And so it's like this this is a much more complicated situation, which is why an evidentiary standard is is just something that has to be deferred to while we try to improve our ability to get into evidentiary standards. Um, and I don't know, it's like I said a moment ago, I don't know what the resolution to the problem is because, uh, I believe that literally zero people should ever be victimized by anything ideally. And everybody mm -hmm. who is victimized or who does victimize somebody should be held to account one mm -hmm. way or another. But this is an icky situation because it's almost always going to boil down to things that unless we have really weird surveillance that I don't think any of us should want, 
there's it's always going to boil down to kind of this he said she said mess Um, well i feel like that's inevitable at some point i think like you're gonna have zero anonymity going forward i think you're oh yeah cameras everywhere and yeah my underwear pictures are gonna leak sooner (laughs) i was looking forward to those the other day but then you lost 500 followers so then you didn't oh i've lost like 1500 but i heard it's mostly because people are leaving twitter person like some people are mad at me they're always mad at me Mm -hmm. but i think it's just people like there's an exodus from twitter because they locked the president's account and i mean whether whatever you think of trump that's a symbol of censorship um that's frightening that you know jack dorsey has the power and his his team which i will tell you is not unbiased Mm -hmm. it is a very politically biased team has the power to decide what speech is and is not acceptable and can can even lock the president of the united states's account Um, so do you think I think speech is a really important topic. So do you think that language can be violent or even by degree of just saying it's inciting violence or do you think like all speech should be uncensored? Okay, so it is a bit of a complicated issue. Mm -hmm. I actually think that we're pretty close with what we've managed to work out in the U.S. So most, almost all of our speech is protected. You can definitely incite violence with with speech. Mm-hmm. You also can issue a clear, uh, you can issue speech that indicates a clear and present danger of violence that can be then, you know, responded to with force. But that's a matter for courts to decide when and it was and was not adequate. Speech itself being violence, I don't think so. Um, I think that we should draw and keep a clear line between violence, which is physical, and speech, which is not physical. Mm-hmm. But I will acknowledge that you can definitely tear somebody down with speech. You can mm-hmm. definitely screw them up psychologically. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely push them to the point where they end up harming themselves. Um I mean, we've seen cases where people get one of these mob mobbings on social media and they get they, they commit suicide. That actually happened to one of my colleagues, actually. Yeah, I know all Mm -hmm. about it. I'm still very angry about that one. Yeah, I just got like goosebumps. That was such a terrible thing. And the industry did absolutely nothing about it. And I absolutely, I was absolutely, I'm still livid about that. Why is that what that, why is that where they go with it? It's like you had this like beautiful person, like not out on the outside. Like she really was a wonderful person. Take her life. And for listeners that don't know, we're talking about August Ames. Yeah. Um, Because... People intentionally sent a mob after her because yeah. she said who she was going to work with. Work with, right? yeah. Or yeah. mind blowing. Yeah. And it's horrific. Mm-hmm. The dogpile phenomenon is something that we really should be looking down on. People who are participating in dogpiles often, though, don't know they're participating in dogpiles. They're one voice. Lots of other people are all doing it independently and don't realize mm-hmm. the cumulative effect. But I still think that it's absolutely crucial to understand that the speech itself cannot constitute violence. Mm-hmm. Um, although it, I, it's so important to acknowledge that it can lead to um, horrific consequences. And so they're, they're, the norm that we try to keep, like I know that I go, you said I go hard on Twitter and I try, I, I, I have a few people who keep a check on me. You're this. not mean, though. That's exactly. That. You said You're it. Never mean. You said yeah. it. It's mm-hmm. always. I have a, a handful of people who are my barometers, and they tell me, "You're you're still in good humor. You're still mm-hmm. being funny. 
you're still like, you're just speaking plain, simple truth. You're not Mm -hmm. being mean to people. But I think if you can't joke about things, like what else do you have really? I feel like comedy and satire can like bring us together and also show us how ridiculous certain ideas are. Um, Like Gad does that really well, like to the point where he'll like say something uh, satirical and everyone's like on the right will start coming at him. And he's like, I'm actually defending you, you knucklehead, but you just don't get it. Getting people to laugh at themselves. Richard Pryor, (laughs) getting people to laugh at themselves about how absurd the racist beliefs that they would have had are, or what it looks like when those get reflected back in a jovial, positive way. That did more and was more beneficial. So if you can get people to laugh, whereas what we usually see from critical theorists is getting people to feel shame, Mm -hmm. and that's where you bully people into suicide. Shame is not the light side. Shame is the dark side. But if you can get people to laugh, Mm -hmm. that opens things up. And it does bring people together. Like, Almost all of my, I mean, what is, what think of every friend you have, you have inside jokes. That's part of the cultural arrangement of having a friend inside jokes, mm-hmm. which means humor that you share between it. So there's an intimacy building um, function to humor in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like stories are, can be the most powerful things that are like a unifier across political spectrums and races and genders and all of the things. And that's one of the things I've noticed with critical theory is there is no humor. You're not allowed to make fun. You're not even like in a satirical way or not or a lighthearted way. It's those are microaggressions, right? So for everyone that doesn't know what critical theory is, um, you gave like the what they say it is, right? But what is it? actually how is it actually being implemented on the universities and now even in lower education so critical theory is a school of thought that questions the legitimacy and the value of liberal like classical liberal ideals like what the united states is based on what the western democracies are based on and enlightenment rationalism as a matter of fact one of their chief books is called the dialectic of enlightenment i know this is going to get dorky for a second it's what i do so (laughs) Get dorky with me, Candace. Um, <laughs> the dialectic of enlightenment actually makes the art. The point of the dialectic of enlightenment is to argue that religion and um, the enlightenment itself, enlightenment rationality and liberal societies have as an endpoint fascism. They always become fascist. And so they have and to be overthrown. what's fascism for the listeners too? Because I, I Nazis. think- Nazis. Nazis. Okay. Yeah. So just like a dictatorship kind of and- um like this yeah. the, okay absolute social control usually by a ruling party or yeah a ruling party really technically fascism is the combination of corporate and government interests to have complete control over society and they are super against that which is the critical theorists are technically super against fascism which is good except that they are also all marxists and think that the only remedy to fascism is marxism which creates fascism every single time so they've kind of got a broken assumption going on in there so they literally think that free societies become totalitarian every time if you don't get involved and critique them And by critique, what they mean is find the contradictions within society and pick them apart. Find the places where there are things that they claim are oppression and pick them apart. And again, because these people are Marxists, everything that's not Marxism is oppression. So you have to kind of, it's when you read it, you're like, this isn't necessarily as bad as it sounds. 
until you remember that that's their background assumption. And that's what they're trying to achieve. So critical theory technically has three components for something to be considered a critical theory. Um, this dates back to a, an essay written in 1937 where it was defined. And those components are that it has to have a normative vision for society. That's where I said the Marxism actually comes in. Secondly, and it doesn't necessarily have to be strict Marxism. It can be something like neo-Marxism or communism in general, though. Okay, it has to go to a communist like utopia. Communist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it has to have that normative vision. It has to be able to explain how society at present does not satisfy the conditions necessary to make that happen. They call that problematizing now. So if you've heard that's problematic, mm-hmm. that's what it's doing. And the third thing is, is that it has to be, as they say, wedded to praxis. In other words, it has to be able to be put into action by social activists who want to bring about social revolutionary change. And it's like all of it. Yeah, it's like, oh, wait, that's what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. And this has actually gotten pretty thoroughly loose in society. And its logic is, I mean, depending on how deep you want to get with the philosophy, its logic is to tear down systems that work but aren't perfect by picking at the places where they're not perfect and dragging up their their weaknesses and making a lot of hay about their weaknesses rather than focusing on what good they're also doing or focusing on the reasons why they are the way they are. I used to give an example of that from one of the critical studies, which is called fat studies, not making that up. It is the critical study of fat. It it believes that obesity is, is not a medical situation, but rather a narrative created by medical professionals to control fat people and and justify fat hatred. I'm not exaggerating. And they have a journal called fat studies. We published a fake paper in that called fat bodybuilding, um, where we, (laughs) where we argued that there should be a category in professional bodybuilding where people display their fat in a non-competitive way and are and basically how did that just end? the, I mean, that one got accepted. That was considered a great paper. Yeah. Holy cow. One, yeah. Fat bodybuilding. And so the example I, a lot of times will give is that a fat studies uh, activist would look at the seats in an airplane mm-hmm. and you, you know, they're not tend well I'm I'm a big guy kind of I have big shoulders so there's no they're not really comfortable for people who are of size and mm-hmm. being of size myself and so um they would look at that and they would say that it has nothing to do with 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 the design requirements the engineering for for the fact that you're in this metal tube that has to successfully fly and it's only so wide and the fact that the economics of the situation demand that they get as many seats as possible but they would criticize the economic side of it because they're Marxists, um, they would say that it's that society doesn't care about fat people. Therefore, airplane seats don't accommodate their their size. Uh, and in fact, they get into that level of intention. They don't care about fat people or they hate fat people. They want fat people to be uncomfortable. So they'll stop being fat. And this is the kind of analysis that you can expect from critical theories of some, whether it's in this case, fat, we could switch I mean, the examples around race are just copious right now. So I think the fat studies is a, is a pretty good example. Um, I'm sure you probably saw and were involved with like the Cosmo, this is wellness thing that they did. Was it this is wellness or this is health? Yeah, this um, is healthy. This is healthy. Yeah, and the, the, the very large woman doing a yoga pose or whatever. Yeah. So 
or I don't know like that on the cover. I don't know what the exact definition of um, like obesity is. Like, is it a BMI score that has to be like if your BMI is over a certain amount? Um, obviously, without the exception, everyone uses the rocket as an example, and they're like, "Oh, well, he's technically obese." It's like, okay, but you have—he's an outlier. Like that guy is a, a mountain of a person. Body fat percentage is probably the more accurate measure that comes in at a second level, and body fat percentage is, of course, the thing that your BMI does not have health implications. So you can look at the rock, and then you can look at, um, you know, Chris Farley or something like that, mm-hmm. and it's not the same thing. It's not the same. It's not the same thing. And BMI is a is a poor proxy for that. So body fat percentage is going to be much more relevant. And hopefully that's the actual definition that they use. But this isn't what the fat studies people care about. Critical fat studies does not care about this. There's as you know, you're not allowed to say that fat is bad for you. That's just a narrative created by people who have the power as doctors to classify people as unhealthy and therefore by implication, bad, uh, which is something they've written into that script. But there's so much counter evidence. So I don't see how, like when they had the, and she, you can, that's the one thing you can look at someone, you can tell like when they're that large, like they're not healthy. There's your bones aren't meant to sustain that kind of weight. Right. And you start getting the visceral fat, which for people that don't know, like that's when the fat's literally growing around your organs and that's how you get heart failure, liver failure, all of these things. So it's not to say we should bully you and say that, you know, we find you gross or you need to fix your lifestyle. That's not what it's about. It's just saying like you're making poor choices, Probably, right? Most, there are a few people that have a medical condition, right? Like sure. It's like 5% or something. But for the majority, sure. it's a life. It's a lifestyle. And if you're saying there's nothing wrong with this and let's make sure everything's comfortable, let's you know have a whole segment of the plane that will fit people that are at a larger size, I think the discomfort is part of what's going to make you make those healthier choices. Um, and again, it has nothing to do with like aesthetics. Like it doesn't matter what I think you look like or you think you look like, but like, do you want to live to hundred years old? Do you want to be able to bend down and go up a flight of stairs and not be out of breath when you're walking around the store? Like these are all important things and we should all want to be healthy. So I don't know how that's, how that's like a controversy, right? Like how, how are you mad? Because I'm just simply stating like there's substantial medical evidence that being that size is not good for you. They literally think that medical evidence is something that's created by a thin normative society that does not appreciate fat people as a way to justify excluding and mistreating fat people. I'm not kidding. This actually, if you want to trace that back where that comes from, that line of thought specifically comes from the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who wrote these books, uh, uh, History of Sexuality, where he described how gay people have been treated throughout history and excluded and classified as having psychiatric disorders or other problems. And then he wrote a book about um, crazy people, uh, history of madness, and described the same thing that people that the government didn't want to be able to have to deal with or listen to. They would say, oh, that person's crazy and put them in an asylum and lock them up. And so he, Foucault went too far with it and said that while this could be used as a means of social control, He was claiming that that's its primary nature. And then these fat studies people borrowing off of Foucault have gone even further and have claimed basically that all medical narratives that make them feel bad, they go to the doctor, they're told they're overweight, they feel bad. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, You feel down if you get told like you've got a problem and it might be your fault. 
and they they've decided that that's all just bogus a bogus construct of people in power it's in some sense then it's like support group mentality taken way too far and out of its proper context because i agree that you know we shouldn't stereotype people based on their weight we mm-hmm. shouldn't mistreat them. We shouldn't assume things like they talk a lot that that there are stereotypes that fat people are lazy, that fat people are stupid, that fat people are gross or dirty or whatever. None of that's applicable. None mm-hmm. of that's fair. And these mm-hmm. stereotypes, you know, are not justified and we shouldn't be applying them. And they also talk about how it makes them feel to have to interact with a society that's not accommodating them. And I understand I understand feeling bad. And at the same time, it's like two things can be true at once and they're not allowing that. And for some reason, this view, this critical view of the of the world denies the reality entirely and kind of lives in that let's accommodate the feeling side very much like a support group would. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that sucks. You know, if you go to a support group, it's going to be like, oh, that sucks that that happened to you. I'm so sorry. Give hugs, you know, rub the back. And it's a different kind of a, a vibe, but that's that's not changing the amount of visceral fat you have around your pericardium. No. Right. And so And I feel like there's an issue too with like that kind of mentality, like the support group mentality where everyone's like kind of coddling you and comforting you. Mm-hmm. And like there's a there's like a fine line between when someone needs support and when you're actually enabling bad behavior. So um, That's right. I have like when I was younger, I got diagnosed with endometriosis, like pretty rough. Like I actually had to have surgery to get it like mm-hmm. removed because it was debilitating. Um, and then I ended up getting Graves' disease sh- shortly after. After, and it went a really long time without getting diagnosed. So I got really, really ill. So I didn't really know what was happening with me. I once I got my diagnosis. I joined a couple of like these Facebook groups just to like see what other people were going through. And so Mm -hmm. quickly I just saw like all of this like self-loathing and I like just complaining, complaining, complaining. And I can say this because I've like firsthand gone through it. It sucks. It's painful. There are like shitty side effects of medications and all of these things. But if you live in this negative space and you just perpetuate each other's like misery, you're never going to get out of it. You're never going to heal. So I like quickly left all of those things. I ended up um, doing a bunch of work and most of my stuff is like in really great shape right now. But if I had stayed there, I would have been like, this is normal, right? And this is how I fit into this group. So I think discomfort is super important. And again, it's not to fat shame or yell at someone and make them feel like shit. But like, I think it means something if you can't fit in a seat, right? Like, like, that should tell you something like your health is yeah. in danger. So yeah, yeah. I think the intention no, that's exactly good, right. Short-sighted. No, you're right. The enablement is the exact parallel. It's, uh, you know, people want to accuse the self-esteem culture or whatever. Maybe that's a thing, all this self-esteem based education. Um, but the truth is that there is a difference. Like, and nobody's confused about it if it's somebody who's like an alcoholic or if there's somebody who's using uh, drugs and it's destroying their lives. We all understand that there's a difference between supporting that person and enabling mm-hmm. the problem. Mm-hmm. The same thing occurs in a bajillion different categories of life. We can talk about it very easily with you know this obesity kind of thing. You can talk about it with other health issues like you've just brought up. We could also talk about it with, you know, 
cultural approaches to what do you think about education? What do you think are the right values to have in society? What do you, you know, their enablement happens everywhere. And this is where, when you hear people criticize stuff like the, you know, the race policy that people are trying to pass using, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whatever as the, as the push that they say it's the soft biggest bigotry of low expectations that you're coddling. You're saying that black people aren't as capable um, and so you have to give them a lower and different standard, for example. And they say, well, that's technically racist against black people. And it is. It's the, it's, and it's at some level, and I think that it's, there's a fine line here, but at some level, you're no longer helping. You are enabling and perpetuating and deepening a problem. I remember my friend when it was in the military and he told me that when he was, this was back in, in the day, as they say, uh, he's an older guy now. Uh, when they had a, an, aff an affirmative action program in his in his Marine Corps unit, and the way that it worked was anybody could go. It wasn't like oh, only black people or only Hispanics or whatever can come to it. Anybody can go. Anybody who needs more help, but the standard doesn't change. If you want to get through your PT test, you still have to pass the PT test exactly as it is. But we'll dump resources into helping you get over the standard that doesn't change. And I thought, man, that's just so obviously the difference between helping and enabling, right? It's so obviously the difference mm -hmm. that when you, you don't compromise on the standard, but then offer extra support to help somebody get over the hump, that's clearly helping. But then if you say, oh, we'll just make it easier for you, you don't mm -hmm. have to do as much. That's something very different. And in, obviously when you have a thing like the military where units are going to get killed if people aren't functioning at a high level, and everybody in the unit's not functioning at a high level, you can't compromise on the standards. So mm -hmm. when you have places where you can't compromise on standards, it becomes much more clear how important it is to use a helping model versus a an enabling model. Um, so like where we see people saying, oh, it's racist. The SAT is racist, so we have to get rid of it. Why? Well, because some people have more SAT tutoring than others. And those people, they argue, are per those people, by the way, have something in common. It's called money which turns out not to have a race. You know, mm -hmm. I look at my my money and it's all green-ish. They've made them peach and purple and bluish and things now, but it, it it's all the same mm -hmm. to everybody. $100 in your hand, $100 in my hand, the fact that you're a woman and I'm a guy that we have very different ethnic backgrounds matters zero. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not even race. But anyway, they say, oh, well, this, there's, there are statistical differences in how much money people have, and that must be where the racism is. So they've hidden the racism for step back. That's fine. Anybody under a certain income level or anybody who even wants to, we're going to put money into free SAT prep or reduced cost SAT prep or whatever it is. So that's the helping, but the standard doesn't change. But then when you have this other mentality, like let's get rid of the SAT entirely, that's something different. And mm -hmm. why would you want to do that? Because then there's no objective standard to let somebody get in. It's all a subjective standard. And when it becomes a subjective standard, you get to determine what subjective standards you want. This is, by the way, a lot of people don't know this. This is literally exactly the same thing that happened when Mao was taking over in China. He got rid of the standardized tests and made it party loyalty tests instead. Oh, wow. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And so... Uh, yeah, a lot of people don't have any idea that, that that's what, what happened there. So the difference between helping and enabling is the crux of 
everything that's happening with these debates because they do have a they, there are points to what they're saying you know black lives matter isn't coming out and saying stuff that's just made up some of it's made up some of it's just completely crazy if you read the well they took their website down the part that was yeah, really crazy that. but you know we're going to abolish the family and all of this crazy stuff uh and we, we stand with our comrades your know, trans comrades or something like it's like whoa comrades okay um they're like, I see what's going on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that said, there are points to what they're saying. There are disparities that are statistical, but they're also for reasons that were legitimate. You know, redlining happened. Jim Crow mm-hmm. happened. Slavery happened. Mm-hmm. These things happened. The Great Society, because it's not all right wing or racist or whatever. The Great Society happened, which was this gigantic program put in right after the Civil Rights Act in 64 by Johnson, um, by President Johnson. The Great Society was this huge enablement program. And so you see where help became enablement. And all of a sudden, they, in, in fact, you can hear people, the critics, if you read the critical race theory, they talk about it. And they're like, it stole our culture from us. We had a culture, even though it was bad under segregation. We had a culture, we had values, we had a core structure. And the Great Society created huge incentives, for example, to be a single mother with many children with no father. Mm-hmm. It created all kinds of new problems and they're not wrong to criticize those things. So progressive policy can fail. Racism is also a problem. They're not talking about stuff that's totally made up. And there are, point, there are points there, but there's a difference between helping and enabling. And that's the essence of the argument. I'm glad you brought that up. So this is going to yeah. sound shocking to some people. Um, when all of this crazy stuff was happening, like the lockdowns and the protests and the riots, like the beginning of the year, I was glued to Twitter, glued to the news. I was living in like a constant state of just like just preparing to for a revolution or an attack. Like I just didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and we have a one-year-old and he was on a wait list for a couple of private schools around here and they start at 18 months, which is nuts. Um, so I saw what was happening with a lot of these, I guess, um, like critical theory classes or what are the, like, is that what you would call them? Like when they're yeah, teaching sure. them to kids? Um, I saw this happening to children and like them taking anyone that was considered ethnic to one room and anyone that was considered white to another room and telling them like these really crazy stories. And I was like, well, I need to see if the schools that he's on the wait list for are doing this. Um, I contacted one of them. They wouldn't even let the director speak to me after everything. I actually sent them like Sam Harris's podcast episode and he's like left of center for anyone that doesn't know. Um, And I was like, because their website was saying that they teach anti-racism to 18 month olds. And I was like, well, that part of their brain's actually not even done. Like they actually don't see race yet. So they just see who's my circle of providers and anyone who's not that is just a stranger. There is no like black, white, Asian, whatever. Like they don't have that yet. So like you're really going to teach anti-racism to an 18-month-old that doesn't know racism and then tell him that he's um, privileged and going to be the oppressor because of his skin tone. Well, unbeknownst to you – his great father was actually in Auschwitz and had the tattoo and everything, had to flee Hungary under persecution. Um, my grandmother was threatened to put, be put in camps in the United States because she was Japanese. So mm-hmm. if you want – and his um, great-great-grandmother on my husband's side was Native American. So you're going to tell him that he comes from this long line of privilege and it's – according to them, it couldn't be further from the truth. So I pulled him from that school. 
But how did we get from universities to 18-month-olds? How are we teach like, how do we think that's a good idea? I, I just don't know how that infiltrated. I, I'm going to say something that's going to be taken as very unfair, but the people who are doing this are crazy. That's important to understand. They are obsessed with this. They are obsessed with this. They think it is the only possible way to get to a truly liberated society is to literally indoctrinate everybody who can be indoctrinated in this as early as possible throughout their entire lives to get them to see all of the problems with the system and to accept the new system that they that they envision. They don't have any details of how it's going to work. You know, it's that classic situation of, you know, here's all this stuff seen missing, you know, it's just a black screen seen missing. And then, you know, the utopia is on the other side of it. Uh, they don't have the details. It, that's in the seen missing black screen part that that'll be filled in later after they get power for sure. Right. And that's where they start walking people into blenders and why it's a terrible, terrible way to approach this thing. But they start the universities, people, people perceive the universities are like Narnia. Like they're just this thing that's off there and like weirdo professors are involved and, you know, they don't really, they're not really connected to reality and good for them. And kids go for four or five years and party and learn ish and become, you know, make friends and network and whatever. And it's like not real reality, mm -hmm. but that's incorrect. The university is the center of culture. And a lot of people don't understand that. And in particular, the university is also the center of where we teach our teachers. <laughs> and our colleges of education have been grabbed by this, what they call critical pedagogy. So it's critical theory applied to teaching methodology is what that means. Have been, that they had a hold of the teaching colleges by like 1981 and we're very strongly pushing it into teacher education. So almost every teacher, whether they believe it or not, has been taught this at least over the last 30 years. Um, certainly over the last 20, they, it's virtually, there's no other option to, to become a teacher except to go through these programs and learn this. And teachers unsurprisingly skew very heavily into it. Um, as a result. So what happens with the university, though, I don't know, a lot of people have heard of Andrew Breitbart and his claim that politics is downstream from culture. But what they don't realize is that culture is downstream from education. And so the university is constantly coming up with the ideas that are going to go into our classrooms. It's constantly going coming up with the ideas that are going to go into college classrooms that are then going to go out into the new professional class. The culture that's happening at college, those networks I just mentioned that people go to college to form, become the professional networks out in the world. So if you get people, if this is happening on campus now, somewhere between five and 10 years from now, that's going to become the norm. As a guy told me, a business guy told me a couple of years ago, he said, I used to laugh and think, wait till these kids get out of college and go into the real world, mm -hmm. it'll fix them. And then I said, he said, I suddenly realized one night in a fit of terror, he's <laughs> I suddenly realized, no, they're going to go out into the real world and remake it the way they think things are supposed to be, mm -hmm. because they're going to become the ones who define what the working world looks like. And you can, in a rich, comfortable country, a successful country, you, you can uh, sustain that illusion for a while. You can become uncompetitive and you can focus on extraneous variables for a little while. 
reality catches up to you. So do your so do your enemies, your foreign enemies catch up to you. The competitiveness. I mean, this is this is the biggest blind spot Americans have right now is the Chinese are not relaxing. Mm-hmm. The Chinese, the, the competitive edge between nations right now is is really a thin line. And we're over here arguing about if the SAT is racist and <laughs> they are not. The, just be assured they are not. In fact, they're telling us to do it because they know it's weakening Western countries to argue about these things and to diminish their, their standards um, around them. So how it happened, though, was a series of moves in through education on the one hand, but also culturally. I don't know if you've read the book, Shelby Steele's book, White Guilt. It's so important. No, I haven't. I've I've heard a lot of people talking about it. Yeah, everybody, you bring it up and they're like, I'm not reading another one of those woke books. And uh-huh. it's like, it's not woke. It's oh, the I always opposite. thought it was woke. Okay. Everybody, I did too. I may have called I thought it was woke and re- refused to read it. Shelby Steele is a black conservative at Stanford. Okay. And he explains in that book that with the civil passage of the Civil Rights Act, one of the cultural changes, so we, I kind of alluded to this earlier, one of the cultural changes that happened was that basically white people lost all their moral authority. So if black people who they had been oppressing, like seriously, legitimately until five minutes ago, came in and demanded something, all they could do is shrink and say, okay, and just give it away. And so he says that that, that this is the dynamic by which it started to mainstream into culture. Uh, in a very kind of cold economic analysis, you would say that an incentive structure was created around basically the way that Shelby Steele describes it is white people buying moral authority from racial minorities by giving them their way. Like, I'll give you what you want and you don't call me a racist. And that became a cultural economic transaction Mm. that started to define a lot of things. That's Shelby Steele's argument in white guilt. And I think there's a lot there. And so what we've had then is this series of manipulations that have, have occurred. The, the, the biggest, most obvious one, ones in our recent memory would be, so Barack Obama got elected in 2008. I'm old enough to remember clearly living in the South. People were like, went bonkers, right? They're flying Confederate flags. They're hanging Obama's in effigy and setting him on fire. People, I saw people with bumper stickers that said things like, you know, it's called the White House for a reason to deny that racism broke out like crazy in the election of our first black president is insane. It definitely broke out. Well, these these critical theorists, critical race theorists specifically seized upon that very successfully and said, see, we've said America is more racist under the surface than anybody ever knew. And that's what they've maintained all along is that racism doesn't go away. It hides itself better. And under certain circumstances, it'll reveal itself. And so you had a major step toward mainlining, whoa, those guys might have something to what they're saying. And then in 2013, Trayvon Martin was shot and Black Lives Matter formed. Not a lot came directly out of it then, but by 2015, these exact same critical race theory radicals rather than grassroots black activists had taken over Black Lives Matter. And you had this huge outbreak following um, the the shooting in Ferguson, that Michael Brown in Ferguson. Black Lives Matter was blocking roads or blocking roads to hospitals and airports. They were doing, I mean, they're, in Tennessee, where I live, we, we tried to pass a law that said that if protesters block the road, you can hit them with your car. And so that again, 
oh, wow, America is so much more racist. They were very successful, even though the facts of the, the Trayvon Martin case is more complicated, but the, the, the Michael Brown case was just almost pure distortion in terms of what actually happened. And they were very successful in mainlining, oh my gosh, the police are racist. And the, I hate to tell my libertarian friends, you got played because you hate cops and they played into your cop hating really well. And there you go. But the, the, by putting it into the police are racist, they were, they were very successful at tapping into a sentiment because nobody likes to get hassled by the police and mainlined their story further. And then this has just been a cascade ever since that they've been able to hitch on when done. Then the biggest one is when Donald Trump got elected mm -hmm. and we're not talking about this year yet. What was the whole narrative? He's a racist. He's a racist. He's a racist. Only a racist nation could possibly have elected him. Only secret racists, all these secret racists, white women, come get your girls. That was a headline in the New York Times in 2018. Um, only a secretly racist country like the critical race theorists have been describing could possibly have elected him. And then you have basically the left and probably a quarter of the right half of the country like in psychological shock that Donald Trump won that election. Mm -hmm. Um Against all odds, I guess we could say, uh, because nobody really understood what was going on in the country is why we we're all so confused. And I remember I'm in the exact same room when I found out and I was like sitting in the floor over here, like in total Trump derangement, like having a <laughs> conniption fit in the floor that night, um, like two, three in the morning when it became obvious what was what was happening, watching the New York Times needles like everybody else in the whole universe was and that creates a gigantic well of vulnerability, people freaking out, dying for an explanation. How could this horrible, ostensibly horrible thing have happened? People still think people are still losing their mind over how horrible it was, where very little bad per, can be perceived to have happened as a direct result of Donald Trump, other than the huge amount of he's a racist, our country's racist that it mainlined. And critical race theory was like, we have an answer the country secretly racist and tons of people saw that as a better answer than and an easier to grasp answer than we don't actually understand what's going on in our country at a fundamental level that mm -hmm. would have allowed this to happen. And um, so it, it, it mainstreamed. And then this year, of course, they, they very, very skillfully manipulated the events with starting with George Floyd um, and how, I don't know. There's been a bifurcation because people woke up like crazy on the one hand. That's probably why you and I are talking. And then on the other hand, people were, I mean, just completely indoctrinated by this. I mean, just gone. Like I have family members who won't talk to me anymore. Oh, wow. Like gone, like literally family members who are like, they, they texted me over my tweets about black lives matter right after George Floyd died saying like, guys, this isn't what you think it is. And they were like, literally, quote, what the fuck happened to you, dude? And they haven't spoken to me since. And this is like six, seven months ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, sorry to hear that. It's great. I think it's so intelligent, though, right? Like you've said this on a couple of podcasts that you've been on, which is how clever the name of the organization is, because it's, it's a statement. And it's like a fact. It's not and they're yeah. using that against us, right? Like most people, yeah. very few people would disagree with the sentence, Black Lives Matter. Like, of course they do, right? Mm -hmm. So 
it gets very confusing, again, for a lot of people who don't have the time and they're not digging into the organization and they just think that they're one and the same. Well, they this is the name, so of course I support it, right? And anyone who yep. says otherwise, like you must be racist because you're saying black lives don't matter. It's not what a lot of the critics are saying, right? They're not saying that sentence isn't true, that statement isn't true. They Everyone's behind that. What they're saying they're not behind are like the crazy policies that the organization stands for, which you've mentioned before is like Marxism and taking down the family and um, getting rid of police, getting rid getting of prisons. Rid of, right. Which is what do what kind of country do you think we're going to have without like order or structure? Right. So I want to say um, Nicole Arbor was posting that they raised a, like a billion dollars, I think, in 2020, a billion dollars just in that year. Yep. If they truly had the best interest of the black community, like why hasn't any of that been spent yet? Like why are we not reinfiltrating that into all of the small businesses that were torn down during like these riots and like protests, right? Like why are we not helping that community? So someone's getting paid. It's definitely mm-hmm. it's not the people. The people aren't benefiting from that. So it's like what's their end goal? And I don't know. We see what happened with um the storming of the Capitol just the other day. And then Biden, instead of saying like, you know, this is wrong, like, let's not do this. He's just like, well, if they were black, they would have all died. I'm like, why are we still doing this? Like you're just perpetuating hate and like creating division against groups. And I had some people um, DM me that were like, I just don't understand. I don't know what I tweeted. I think I tweeted, um, can we just all agree that violence doesn't inspire change and they're like how can you be saying this because if they were black they would have died just repeating what they heard biden say and i'm like do you really think that's true though because i watched all spring (laughs) of a lot of riots and a lot of looting and police just were like i'm not touching this right they just let it it happen yeah no it's 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 amazing how how profound that that mythology has 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 penetrated the society and people just take it like it's true um that i wrote this hard essay and published it on christmas for all the poor people like myself who couldn't meet with their families for christmas uh i had just gone to a big conference and my mom had had a somebody come into her office at work who had been exposed so we were like okay let's just not have christmas i guess this year so we didn't have christmas this year um So I was like, well, people, there's a lot of people who don't. So I'm going to get this essay out. So I worked on it on Christmas Eve and put it out Christmas morning. And um, I describe it as pseudo reality, fake reality. It's a false reality. It is a distortion of reality where the there's a particular lens that you have to view everything through. And if you the way that it works is that if you question the lens, you get called a name Mm. that's really nasty, in this case, racist and to, to you are correct. It's it, it just sows division. It just creates more problems. But the reason that it keeps happening is because it works. It will continue to happen until it stops working. And I don't know how to get people to understand that. The you know, is that there it's a going curve? to just keep working until? Like, do you think there's a curve? Like, what's I the, mean, what's the breaking point? So when you say it'll work until it stops working, like, what's that breaking point? Because to me, like, I've never see, seen anything that's happening like the last year that's where it becomes really interesting because um the number of people who are getting savvy to it and sick of it like where you just said you know why is this still happening why are we still doing this uh do you even think that's really true there are 
more people it depends on each event because people are just like tossed around by each current event so this thing that happened at the capitol has set things back i think but eventually what happened what what would have to happen is that enough people see it to where all of a sudden and more people more and more people tend to see the manipulation that this is this same narrative is just getting pushed on us and it it defies evidence it defies reason it defies experience um but it, when a certain proportion of the population is clear on that, it creates a critical mass where lots of other people will tip over. The problem is right now is it's just become purely partisan. It mm -hmm. defines which political side you're on and each side completely dismisses the other side as, you know, the axis of evil. And therefore there's this kind of blockage that's, that's stopping it from, from kind of taking that natural course. I don't know where that breaking point is i actually perceive that we're closer to it than we think i feel like although it might be just where i sit it feels to me very much like the democrats are overplaying their hand with this and the activists are overplaying their hand when i see it on twitter which skews left uh if you look at their demographics it skews hard, hard left. left granted a lot of these kinds of tweets get ridiculous numbers of likes and retweets, you know, 500,000 for some blatantly racist comment. But at the same time, when when people with, you know, those blue check marks make these comments, they get ratioed a lot. People are a lot more people are not are seeing it. They're not having it. They understand it and they're speaking up about it. So in a sense, you know, that's what my work in the last couple of years has been about is just helping people see what's going on. Um, the reason, by the way, that money hasn't been spent is because what these people are after is power. They, that's that's the, the, the long and the short. They're, they're after power, their power, power that goes into the party. I tweeted this morning, speaking of going hard, like what you're looking at is a Soviet vanguard party. If you want to know what Black Lives Matter is doing, go read what Lenin did. It's the same thing. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. It is a vanguard party. Uh, they are interested in themselves and their political agenda wholly, and they will tolerate people of other uh, racial backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds so long as they participate in those politics correctly. They won't tolerate anybody who doesn't. It's not about race. Race is a proxy for power in this case. And you can tell that because, you know, remember Kanye put on <laughs> Kanye, he put on that, that MAGA hat and he's like, I think for myself and <laughs> they were like, literally, I mean, no exaggeration. This isn't, this is almost a word for word quote. They came out like Ta-Nehisi Coates. I can name the person who did it. Writing for the Atlantic came out like the next day and was like, you're not black. Wow. And Joe Biden is like, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black or something, you know, or you ain't... Uh, or you vote for Donald Trump, you ain't black. That's what it was. And uh, it's like, it's all race is a proxy for the politics. They're using race as a tool to push their politics. And when people realize that, because everybody's grossed out about politics, mm -hmm. when people realize that is when I think we'll see more tipping. As long as it stays as an issue about race, it's stuck because mm -hmm. people care rightly a lot about race and racism. They should care less about race. They should care lots about racism um, to make that more clear. In mm -hmm. fact, I think we should care zero about race mm -hmm. at, in the end of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, but people to people are so unjust, as they say. So um, when people realize, though, that race or gender or whatever is being used as a proxy for politics, that's when things might tip. 
because politics is freaking gross. And the fact that you would use race for politics is like, I mean, that's, I, I hate to say it. I don't want to do a Godwin here, but it's, that's literally Nazi gross. That's literally Nazi is to use race as a proxy for politics, for grievance politics in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't, I think there's a huge problem when you define yourself by like things you can't change, right? Like you can't change your skin color. And I don't think that that should determine any bit of you, right? Like there are good people and bad people on all spectrums. It doesn't matter about race or gender or belief systems, whatever. So if you're like, you're black, you have to vote this way. You're a woman, you have to vote this way. I had people um, that were saying, how could a woman that's also like has minority parents and also the porn factor be anything but extreme left. I'm like, that has nothing to do with policies though. Like, sure. Like there are some ugly things that have been said, like Donald Trump is not like charismatic or he doesn't really say things with finesse, right? Like we didn't really have a lot of good options the first go around and we didn't really have a lot of good options the second go around. I mean, I think we have to say there's a bigger problem than the man that's been in office for four years, right? Like there's people that have been in office like their entire lives, career politicians, and still like we're about to be in a civil war. And I don't think that that's hyperbolic. I mean, we have people storming the Capitol. We have people that are turning entire cities on fire. So I'm just like trying to, I'm hoping we're like near the end and like this is as far as it's going to escalate. But if we keep this political division and saying that we are, entirely defined by what party we decide to go with when we only have two, right? That's another problem. Why are there only Mm -hmm. two? Um, I don't see it coming together. That's, that's heart wrenching too. Cause I hear that, you know, I get, I, as you may imagine my, my message incoming messages space is a bit intense. Um, I get every example, everybody who, who has the nerve to send me a DM or whatever, which is my DMs are open. So it's a lot of people. Um, I get every, every example that they run into like, Hey, this is what happened at my work today. Hey, this is what happened at my kid's school today. Hey, Hey, Hey. And it's like, Oh my God, I can't, I I see a thousand or 2000 examples of this madness every day. And so, um, but what kills me is I hear these stories, like people crying, right? Like literally people will come to me crying. Like they're making me racist. I never cared about race before. And now I don't want to and can't avoid it. It's like, I can't see a person and not think that they're going to pull some race politics on me. And it's making me have assumptions and I hate it. And so it is, it's generating exactly the, and the thing is, is that that's kind of how, I mean, I've described the theory as evil. It does. It creates the thing and then says, Hey, look, there's the problem. That's exactly the problem we were talking about. It was there all along because what they say is that it, it doesn't, it's it's constant. It's just hidden better. And so when somebody get, when they turn somebody more racist with what they're doing, it literally, their analysis is, we didn't make you that way. We uncovered what was already inside of you. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's how they think about things. And it, that's, that's evil. That's actually evil. And it, it, but I hear these people like so upset. I feel like we there's like a lot of overcorrection. Like I've seen that throughout history. If we if someone on one party or ideological um, spectrum does something wrong, we just completely swing. Like we have a hard time like finding like a happy middle. Right. So how do we get to said happy middle? Because obviously we went from bad orange man to now Joe Biden. So here's yeah. a huge pendulum swing. Yeah. How do we get to happy middle where like 
we shouldn't have an egomaniac in office, but we also shouldn't have <sighs> someone who's 80 years old with dementia in office. Like, how do we find someone right. in the middle that serves the people? I don't know the answer to how we find that person politically. I do know that the way that you bring people together across division is, for one thing, we've got to start interacting in person with one another more often. I mean, it's lovely to Zoom with you, but in-person meetings are very, very different than mm -hmm. internet meetings. And social media is toxic and that we're all living on it is not good for anybody. But generally, when you find the the psychological literature, literature refers to this as a superordinate identity. When you find some identity that you and I both share, then we don't have a reason for division. We have a reason for seeing ourselves as together. So it brings us together in a social identity thing. So with the military example I mentioned earlier, it might be that you're in the same unit. It might be in, that you're in the same branch of the armed services. It might be that you're in the armed services. It might be that you're an American and that you are in, you know, taking an oath to the constitution or whatever else. Um, so seeing ourselves as American, I think for those of us who are American and our Canadian friends can see themselves as Canadian and we can see ourselves as, as citizens of the free democratic world, if we want to extend beyond that, uh, and therefore seeing what we have in common is the, is the first place. Another thing is by finding, when, when you have diversity of any sort, if you want to have a successful fusion of people, and there have been lots of like things that have come out in the last few years showing this, the, the kind of diversity that these diversity officers are calling for is not what we need because they want people who think the same but look differently. What you actually need is people who are coming together no matter what they look like, no matter what their background, and that they have a shared goal in common. And when you have a shared goal that you're working for, you bond with the people you're working with. And so what we have to start doing in that kind of hypothetical sense is that we have to um, start seeing ourselves as more in that we have more in common than we have different. We have to start working together to build something. And it has to be that we're building something productive. Working to tear something apart is awful. We have to work to build something together. And that can be the country, that can be local politics. We can get involved locally together. Again, that's going to get people together in person. With COVID, that becomes more difficult. We have to do we have to figure out what to do because what we're doing with COVID right now is the problem as well. We're we're oh, driving 100%. people apart and we're not it, it's it's as fake as everything else. Not, the virus is real. The virus is dangerous. I'm not saying that. But lockdowns don't work to control respiratory virus. The evidence is clear that it's not working. We need to approach. Uh, we have to balance, as I, I heard the governor of Georgia say something like this, and I've adapted it a little bit. We have to balance lives, livelihoods, and the lives that we're living. Uh, any sensible COVID policy has to hit all three of those, and we're failing on two of them. Uh, so that's got to, to let go. But what we really need to do is we also need to see, and I think this is an actually a crucial piece. Um, I felt humiliated, to be honest, recently. I spoke with a Catholic bishop, um, and we got asked the same kind of question at the end by the moderator. What, what do we do? And I answered first, and I gave the same kind of like, oh, come together, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, nice. And he was like, we need to resist. And I was like, the bishop was a hard, and I was soft crap, you know? And it's true though. We have to be able to see this thing for what it is. This, when, when you said a few minutes ago that Joe Biden came out and said this thing about, oh, if they were a different race, it would have been totally different. That is something people, as many people as possible need to see for what it is, which is divisive, damaging, unhealthy, unlikely to be true and unproductive. 
And we have to, as if we're going to come together on something, we should be coming together on saying no more of that. We have to resist that mentality and realize that though, you know, I described it over the past 10 years in particular from Obama through Trump, through the present calamities, um, we have to say, be willing to say, okay, we, we gave 10 years to this answer and it's the wrong answer. It was driving us apart and Mm -hmm. we are not going to do that kind of analysis anymore. I think people need to go out and like, if you're in the center ish, you need to go to a place like CPAC as crazy as that sounds. You don't have to participate. You don't have to talk. Just sign up and go walk around. I went, I got invited to go to CPAC last year and very begrudgingly went. I don't really consider myself conservative. I think I'm probably more libertarian, but I'm not a proper libertarian. I don't know what I am. I'm, I'm me. I'm free. I always say I'm politically homeless. Yeah. I'm yeah. Yeah. We, we have like our tent city in the, under the political bridge here together. Um, so it's like, I went and everything that I've heard for the last 10 years about or 20 years about conservatives is a lie. It's just like, there were people of every race. Everybody was friendly. Race wasn't an issue. There were people with diverse views. There were people, everybody was getting along. Everything was like, there was, there was no racist rhetoric. All of these things that we've heard about all those myths that we, I've heard my entire liberal life about conservatives was, was just, you know, poof, gone in a puff of smoke. It was just like, what in the world? This is the opposite of everything I've heard. And I attended a big religious conference actually last year. I'm not religious either. I I attended a big religious conference and, um, same thing. It was like, these are just people, race is irrelevant, that these people are brothers and sisters in Christ, if that's whatever, whoever that's important to. It's like, that's still, there's magic there, right? There's that thing that's above their race, their identity, their man, their woman, their gender, their sex, their sexuality, or whatever. Maybe not sexuality with them. They got to work on that. Um, (laughs) It's true. They do. But here's this thing that transcends all of that. And they're just together. And seeing that, it's like, wow, Okay. I mean, this is a funny, it's a funny example because Trump is, Trump's a flawed, flawed individual for sure. (laughs) And he talks funny. But if you even just don't do it on Google, because it's like Google's all weird, but you can do it on Google. You can go and search on the, the phrase Trump was right. And it's just astonishing what you find. It's just astonishing. And so what we have to do is, is, is understand further that the 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 media complex is making money hand over fist selling us hysteria. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I don't want to come out as hard as Trump and say they're the enemy of the American people or whatever. But in some sense, they are making crazy money selling us hysteria. And so it's time to stop buying the hysteria. If you want to watch the news, I suppose, fine. But you should realize what you're watching. They are selling you hysteria. The story mm-hmm. they're it's selling entertainment. It's very profitable. I even tweeted yesterday, if it bleeds, it misleads. If... <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to have a big dose of skepticism against what we're being fed. Because whether they, they're pushing these crazy divisive narratives on purpose, uh, Joe Biden, doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't have an excuse. Um, mm-hmm. But the media, whether they're doing it on purpose or whether it's because they've driven themselves nuts doing this for four or five years now, I don't know, but it's not healthy. And we've got to divorce ourselves from 
think taking it at face value. We've got to start thinking of what's happening on the news as an attempt to sell us hysteria so that the CEO of CNN can walk home with a really fat check. And Mm -hmm. I think that's super important and whatever the New York Times is doing, that's really important for us to understand right now. Yeah, I think it's important to follow like individual reporters too, like a lot of like independents especially and from all both political sides. Like I follow people on the far left, mm-hmm. I follow people on the right, and I try to follow some people in the middle just so you can see one story from like three different lenses and then kind of come up with like your own conclusion. And for me, the stuff with the media is so frustrating because they were so happy that it was Trump supporters, right? That were yeah. That were raiding the Capitol. But then that same night, like if you follow and- Andy No, mm-hmm. he's posting all this crazy stuff that's happening with Antifa in Portland, but no one's talking about that. So there's violence happening every single yeah. day from political ideologies, but we're only getting to hear what the you know, what the media says, like this is bad. Ignore right. everything else that's happening here. Like there's didn't, crazies on on both walks. Didn't the the super, super leftist mayor of Portland get punched in the face by Antifa on the same night as the Capitol thing? And then that like, oh my they God. like stalked no. him at a restaurant. If I'm not mistaken, they stalked him at a restaurant and then like punched him in the face. Oh my God. Physically assaulted their super leftist mayor who appeased them for like they, he let his city burn to the tune of billions of dollars of damages. The, the people I know who live in Portland are like the city's gutted. The city's going to be a wreck for decades. And he let well, it it's happen. That, it's that saying though, right? That like a radical snake eats its tail. That, yep. So, Mm -hmm. So it's like you can do it's almost like what I see happening is you have a bunch of like very spoiled children and the parent that never wanted to say no. So then like the child ends up overpowering the parent and the parent doesn't even know what to do anymore. That's what I see happening, at least on Twitter. All No, that's exactly right. Uh, That's exactly right. Mm hmm. Yeah, so you just have to start saying no and then like realize like where your eyeballs go is very important because like you are lining pockets of certain people and if you don't like what you see you have to just start changing what you're watching and maybe start questioning things and reading books that are outside of your norm and maybe you'll find out that this person's not so crazy i had um aubrey huff on recently and Mm -hmm. i released his episode on wednesday and i got a shit storm for it and i mean some of it he asked for right like his twitter is very opinionated and sometimes he says stuff that i'm like Ooh, why'd you say that? <laughs> um, but I'm like, just listen to the podcast because I feel like we're all so complex. And if we just say, well, you said this or you believe this, so you're automatically a bad person, like you're not understanding the complexities of human nature. There's so much more to us than like whether you're pro-choice or pro-life. Like that doesn't really tell me much about you. Like the, I saw a tweet that you um, retweeted earlier today with a woman's like, it's time. I'm just going to unfriend all of my Republican friends yeah. because we have nothing in common. I was like, that's just so shallow. Like there's, yeah. I have the most liberal friends on the planet and like they're some of my best friends because there's yeah. something deeper than just like these surface issues. Yeah. And didn't they already unfriend all their Republican friends like four years ago anyway? I mean, yeah. but no, it's no, you're, you, she said we have nothing in common. It's like, really? I bet you both like tacos. Everybody <laughs> likes tacos. Like everybody. And so I bet you that if you lived in the same neighborhood, you care whether there's crime in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I bet you care that your children get along and are able to play together. I bet you care that, you know, um, that that the the state and the the community, the city, the, the country, the neighborhood, everything, every level 
that you live in is safe and prosperous. You have so many things in common. And that's even without getting into the whole like, we're, we're all human kind of universal Well, I was going to actually go there. So the we're all human is a good point because I have a theory. So me and my husband were talking about it. So do you – I think and he thinks that the whole release of like the UFOs and like talking about all these extraterrestrials as of late is to kind of create that commonality, right? Like there's now this outside force that's not human and they're going to try and blow up our planet because that's always the narrative. So like – do you think maybe the reason that they're disclosing or declassifying some of this information is to like hopefully have us each see each other as human and stop picking apart like our differences? Or do you think that they're they're unrelated? I don't know. I have tried to not pay attention to the UFO How? stuff as much as possible. Why? Oh my gosh, I'm obsessed. I'm like, tell me more. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got sucked into paying attention to all that stuff like 10 years ago and I'm like, never again. Um, so it's like, it's... <laughs> I I have to wait until there's something way more like rock solid before before I'm going to get into that. But I don't know. Um, I was making a joke, you know, some crazy Antifa thing happened in Portland a few months ago. And uh, I don't I mean, that happens all the time, but it, one of them. And I remember saying what needs to happen and I hope nobody gets hurt. But what needs to happen is that what that volcano needs to erupt. And then I was like, no, never mind. They would just call the volcano racist, which is true. <laughs> they would. They would say that it caused, you know, more damage to neighborhoods of different race. They would they would find a way to call a volcano racist. And I was like, ah, but if you want and I don't mean to dip out of universal humanity, but we do have to think about everybody misuses the word geopolitics, but we do have to think about kind of global politics. There, there are pretty good reasons to believe that foreign actors outside of our country and outside of the West are trying to manipulate things that are going on. I mean, it's very obvious that, that China is stoking the flames of this racial division, at least uh, among whatever else they might be doing. And there's that weird video that, you know, they didn't like Trump and now they got their guy Biden and blah, blah, blah. And so there, there are other players in the world. Like it's fun that we get the navel gaze and we think we're so comfortable. But if you want to talk about on the, and we're not talking about Chinese people, this universal humanity, human, I've been to China. Many of my friends are Chinese. I even speak a little Mandarin and you know, the whole thing. But um, the truth is the CCP is a political entity that wants to get a lot of power and it wants to be the global hegemon. It wants to be the global superpower. And it's still working on that project. And that if people in the West, those alliances that we've built and the internal strength that our countries had doesn't kind of come back around, we're going to find out that there's been an external enemy, not to call, well, the CCP is sort of like the aliens that came down. Um, the CCP is a very power hungry organization and it could be staffed by people. It is almost entirely Chinese people for a few reasons, one of which is that Chinese people tend to be racist um, when they're Chinese. So yes, I have, but it's not the same. I'm not trying to compare it, but no, I, I yes, I have. And the, there are, there are the Chinese communist party is not the good guys <laughs> in the story right now. And people, if, if it takes a common enemy, spotting that one is a good one to start spotting because they're manipulating an awful lot of things and not to our benefit. It's they have a plan. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe it was um, like an ex, 
like CIA person that released like a book and a bunch of YouTube videos. That they're, I don't know if they're still up, but they were saying that that was actually one of the ways that they infiltrate um, the U.S. was actually going into the universities and not mm-hmm. like just shooting people like the old days. Like there's no longer like assassinations. Like it's a lot yeah. more eloquent now and they kind of just go in at the seams and that's undermine right. democracy that way. And I, mean, I don't think that's like conspiracy conspiracy. What's the word? Yes, that one. I don't think it's crazy to think that, right? Like that, it it's you're, it's a lot safer and it's obviously yeah. working. No, I mean there are issues around what they call the Confucian Institutes and so on. But if you want something just absolutely hard about that, you can go look at. It was in the Harvard Crimson, their student newspaper over the summer. The article's called something like "The Other Chan." Um, I think that's what it's actually called. And it's talking about the foundation of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, which was created by the largest single time donation to a university in history, which was given by a man named Ronnie Chan. That's the other Chan other than T.H. Chan, the name of the school. I think that's his like grandfather or father or something like that. And um, Chan has massive ties to the CCP. So the CCP ostensibly has given a gigantic amount of money to the Harvard School of Public Health in 2014. And in fact, enough to us that they basically established it. It's like half a billion dollars. It's a ridiculous donation. And so, yes, these influence. And this is, again, I'm not making this up. This isn't conspiracy. You just go read the article in the Harvard Crimson reporting on their own School of Public Health uh, written by a freshman. We're not talking like some deep investigator. This this isn't secret stuff. Mm -hmm. So, there are these kinds of infiltrations, these kinds of manipulations that are happening. Um, people don't understand Chinese war mentality, but it's sort of if you know what their relationship with Russia has been over many years, especially, you know, often East is it Eastern, yeah, Eastern Russia is that they there. I heard it described this way once. China is the kind of country that moves their the kind of neighbor that would move their fence into your yard three inches every year and then freak out when you tell them to stop and put it back. <laughs> And they do that literally with the border into Russia. They just kind of go move the border and then wait to see if Russia retaliates. And if they don't, it's now their land. And wow, it's the same kind of mentality, but they do it within institutions as well. They just kind of come in and they come in a little further and they come in a little further. And then by the time you're like, wait a minute, you're in too far back up. They're like, that's racist or that's horrible. You can't, you know, and they flip out and, and keep most of what they've got. And so this is certainly happening. Um, You can see the big changes, for example, in the UN in terms of how much Chinese influence has has come into the UN. And these things are happening and people are not really paying attention to them because we're too busy calling each other racist (laughs) and and, and sexists and whatever, misogynists all the time here. Do you Um, see that letting up now, though, that Biden was elected and Kamala's VP? Do you see the name calling stopping? I, they're going to continue trying to use it. I don't think it's going to work as well. Like Orange Man Bad or Butt Trump was like the magic spell to stop everything. It's what Robert J. Lifton, studying the the Chinese Communist Party when Mao was taking over, he called it a thought stopping technique. Um, he's a, he's he studied um, cults and and essentially how totalitarianism can rise in that regard. And he called these things thought stopping techniques. So Butt Trump. You know, so you say anything, no matter how logical it is, but Trump. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like your brain goes blank for a second. It's like the men in black button got pushed and uh, you don't know what to say back. And 
with Trump out of office right now, you know, they're already turning to the people who allegedly supported him the most. They're going after Hawley. They're going after Cruz. They're going after the, and they're like, oh, they need to be destroyed, blah, blah, blah. Um, they need to be defunded. They need to resign. They need to do this. So they're, I don't know what'll happen because people on the ground, like you and me, don't care about that crap. And we're like, Trump's gone. What are you doing? Why are you still doing this? Uh, he's out. Like he gave his concession speech thing yesterday and he's mm -hmm. like peaceful, orderly transfer of power. I'm going to step down, new administration, the whole thing. And then all day long afterwards, it's like, impeach him. We have to remove him. We have, it's like, he just said he's leaving. What yeah. are you doing? It's a couple and, weeks. Yeah. Nobody, nobody's, res nobody respects that. So I think what we will see is a massive change and shift in the conversation around it because it's, it becomes with, with Biden in office, it will become artificial for them to keep trying to push it the way that they push it, especially as they keep enacting and they will enact lots of policy in favor of that. People are all but the activists and their um, kind of orbit of media enablers are just going to see it as increasingly artificial. So the conversation may change and eyes may open more rapidly. I hope so. I have I have hope for the future. That's kind of all you can have at this point. Otherwise, <laughs> just bury your head for the next few years. I don't know. Yeah, or move to a red state at least. There, which ones, right? Like there's not a, a whole lot left. I mean, I think Texas is going to be blue before you realize it. Um, North Carolina, like, depends on the minute which yeah, one yeah. we are. Yeah, I was actually yeah, yeah. surprised that we were red this year. Uh, I'm in Tennessee. <laughs> we're That's red. pretty <laughs> – Oh, it's really red? I always thought like Well, I mean the cities are tipping, so they're all all the cities are blue mm -hmm. and the cities are growing and tipping and Nashville and Knoxville just grew gigantically this year. Uh mostly of people from blue cities fleeing and coming to Right. And then yeah. you're like and then you keep the way that you were thinking and it's just gonna follow you. Like it's not yeah. a geographic problem it's the mentality right so you, just because you're leaving new york doesn't mean that you're not going to bring those problems with you if you don't change your mindset which yeah. i just hope people catch on to before it's too late otherwise we're gonna be in new zealand that's where that's the uh the abort plan new zealand <laughs> uh, yeah i'll have to get notes from you just in case because i think i'm on the have to abort list way <laughs> up there if things go south mm -hmm. like if stuff goes sideways i'm gonna have to get out of here um, <laughs> yeah you're on like the gulag list I'm probably pretty high on the list, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep you up to date with our travel plans. Yeah, let us know. I'll Thanks. get the wife and we'll we'll run off. <laughs> um, so do you want to tell the listeners where they can follow you, how they can support you, and any projects that you're working on? Okie dokie. So you can follow me on most of the social media platforms at Conceptual James. I use it as consistently as possible. So it works on Facebook, it works on Twitter. I'm most active on Twitter till they throw me off, which hasn't happened yet. Um, I just got verified on Parler. Like we said, same username. I think there might be other ones. I think it, I don't know. I have a website called New Discourses. So there are also New Discourses uh, accounts on the social media for that. The website has lots of information if you wanna try to understand this stuff kind of at a deep level. That's what I do. Um, my main project, of course, is still going to be to produce the materials that go on that website and to explain this problem to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. I may start working the essay I mentioned about um, psychopathy and the origins of totalitarianism is the title of it. I published on Christmas. I may start working that toward a book that explains Ooh. how the woke movement fits into that 
picture. Um, so those are the things I'm working on. That's where you can find me. If you want to support me, you can support new discourses and keep that going. The support button on the website's easy to find. Uh, it's almost all, and in fact, is it all crowd? It is completely crowdfunded. Um, I don't have an OnlyFans yet, but I guess keep your eyes open. <laughs> yeah, I did start a subscriber-only podcast. You. Oh, oh, yeah, I'll let you, I, I will be in touch. <laughs> no, I started a podcast for my subscribers only that I probably get in trouble for and like trademark or whatever, because I called it Only Subs, James Lindsay, Only Subs. And I get like, <laughs> like, I get the like, no, it's not like that. You know, <laughs> it's not a BDSM thing. Um, but no, I do. So if you subscribe, I do have a, a small, a, you know, a shorter form, five to 20 or 30 minute podcast on, on new discourses on all of the subscriber platforms that I call only subs, but I don't have an only fans yet. Um, no <laughs> underwear pictures yet. <laughs> you see, um, so you need the blue check mark and then we'll make it happen. Yeah. Give me a blue check mark and I'll tweet a picture in my underwear. <laughs> God, they're going to give me one tomorrow and I'm going to have to keep my word. I will keep my word. That's the problem. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much. This was super fun. Um, it was nice virtually meeting you. And yeah, I for hope sure. To have you on again in the future. Yeah, let me know. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have the time, please rate and review. And you can always hit subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. I hope to have you back.